Welcome to Leftist Reading, a podcast where I'm a leftist and I read things. Today we're starting a new reading called What is Marxism All About? by FIST, Fight Imperialism, Stand Together, a collective of young activists. It was written originally in 1975 and then edited with some modernizing updates in 2009 and 2013. It's a series of very short chapters covering various Marxist topics to extrapolate a bit on some of the principles kind of suggested in the manifesto we already read, but it's a bit more directly relevant to the current state of society. We're going to breeze through a lot of quite short chapters, so let's get started with part one. What is Marxism all about? A Street Guide for Revolutionaries. A collaborative work by Fist. Fight Imperialism, Stand Together. Chapter 1. Class Society The workers have nothing to lose but their chains. The history of all hitherto existing society is the history of class struggles. Workers and oppressed of the world unite. These are just a few of the slogans still in use today that Karl Marx and Friedrich Engels first popularized in 1848 when they wrote the Communist Manifesto. These popular slogans and the class society they describe are just as relevant today as when they were first written more than 150 years ago. The Communist Manifesto describes the process by which society developed over time so that today it is divided into roughly two great classes. Marxists often refer to the ruling class as the bourgeoisie and the working class as the proletariat. Each class is defined by its relationship to the major means of production. The ruling class makes up a tiny minority of society. This class owns all the property of industry and commerce, the factories, banks, telecommunication companies, retail stores, and more. Most politicians in capitalist democracy are either direct members of the ruling class or its hired agents. Managers, police officers, judges, and corporate newspaper editors are also ruling class agents. The ruling class makes its profits by directly exploiting the labor of the working class. These capitalists see money as a means to make more money and increase their power. The money reinvested to make more money is called capital. The ruling class is a small bunch. Many of their names are easily recognized. Warren Buffett, Michael Bloomberg, the Koch brothers, Bill Gates, and the Walton family, owners of Walmart, are just a few of the biggest names in modern capitalism. These five names alone had a net worth that exceeded $331 billion in 2013. The working class includes all the people who create all the goods and services in capitalist society. These workers are only able to survive by working for someone else, a capitalist. A person is still a member of the working class even if their income is supplemented by investments in their 401k or stock options that the company provides its employees in lieu of direct wages. The unemployed are also workers. Unemployment is a constant and necessary feature of capitalism. The ruling class purposefully forces a significant number of workers into unemployment as a reserve army to compete with employed workers and to drive down wages. The reserve army also provides the capitalist with the flexibility to rapidly hire these unemployed workers at low wages during periods of economic expansion. Stay-at-home parents are also members of the working class. Their unpaid labor is necessary to raise the generation of workers for exploitation by the bosses. Children are workers' dependents who are being brought up and trained to be future workers. The children of workers are members of the working class. The working class is an international caste that is artificially divided into separate countries because of the history of capitalist rule. 
the U.S. working class is multinational. A large portion of the workers here belong to oppressed Black, Latino, Latina, Asian, Native, and Arab nationalities. Some are immigrants and may be documented or not. Workers from the oppressed nationalities, including documented and undocumented immigrants, form a super-exploited segment of the working class. One thing all workers have in common is that their labor produces all the wealth in society. Chapter 2. Capital and Capitalism In every society, from ancient times to feudalism and modern capitalist society, it has been the labor of human beings that sustains the society and creates wealth. It is this basic fact, and the acknowledgement of the laborers as a class in bourgeois capitalist society, that has been hidden from so many in the US. The history of modern society is the history of struggle between two antagonistic sides, the exploited class, the workers, and the exploiting class, the bourgeoisie. Some may characterize this current period in history as capitalism gone wild, but the system of capitalism hasn't just gone off the track. Its objective reality is simply playing out in all its ruthlessness. As Karl Marx said, capitalism came into the world dripping from head to toe from every pore with blood and dirt. It was the urban middle class, including shopkeepers and merchants, desiring free markets and democratic rights, religious freedom and other freedoms not granted under the absolute monarchies of Europe, who had become the new rulers under capitalist society. Numerous European states had already engorged themselves by plundering Asia, Africa, and the Americas through mass murder, genocide, and the enslavement of the peoples of these lands. Marx called this the primitive accumulation of capital. It is described as such because of its savage brutality and utter disregard for humanity. That period of history, where certain European states garnered great wealth, the likes of which had not previously been seen, and developed their societies from this wealth, was unprecedented at the time. Never had humanity seen such brutality. The colonization of the Americas, done mostly through blunt force, and the enslavement of mostly African people on huge plantations in the Americas filled the coffers of these European states. And while the European states were in competition with one another for riches, they were united in the view of their superiority over the darker people of the planet. In class society, wealth is concentrated in the hands of a few, while the majority of people are exploited for their labor. It is human labor that sustained pre-class human beings and, as previously mentioned, produces all wealth in class society. All class society is characterized by exploitation. Whether under feudalism, where serfs, working on land owned by lords, surrendered the fruit of their labor to the lords in exchange for living on the land and keeping enough to feed their families, or under semi-feudal chattel slave conditions in the US, where enslaved Africans had no rights and all they produced belonged to the master. While bourgeois capitalist society may have done away with the feudal society that preceded it and has allowed for what seems to be more individual freedom and democracy, it is still based on exploitation. The capitalist class owns all the means of production in society, the machinery, factories, and raw materials. It gets its wealth by the labor of the workers, who sustain themselves and survive by selling their labor to the owners. This new wage system is nothing more than a different sort of enslavement. The rulers or owners gain huge profits off the backs of workers. The worker has no ownership over the fruit of labor, and, like the other resources used to produce things, belongs to the owner for the amount of time the worker's labor is purchased. The thing produced is then turned around and sold back to the worker at an inflated price. 
Rulers in capitalist society may exploit in different ways, but the reason is the same. Riches and profit. The interests and needs of the workers and capitalists are diametrically opposed. Chapter 3. Exploitation and Surplus Value Human labor is a commodity, a thing of value. It is also a value that, when used, creates value. It is from the labor of the worker that the owner derives profit. If a worker is slated to work eight hours, a small percentage of that time is spent covering the cost of the worker's wage. The rest of the time is unpaid labor, surplus labor, and it is from this that the owner gains extra or surplus value. All that extra time. The worker gets nothing, and the owner reaps all the benefits. The owners do everything necessary to increase the flow of profit. They fire workers, while expecting those who remain to increase productivity. They decrease benefits. They set workers in competition with one another, a process which drives down wages. All these things cause misery for the workers, but are designed to increase profit. That profit is split between the owners and the high-end managers, but none goes to the workers who create it. How many times has a company announced layoffs, all while CEO types get bonuses or raises for tightening the belt? A good example is that of Circuit City, which in early 2007 had 46,000 workers in Canada and the US. In April of 2007, Circuit City, the second largest electronic retailer in the US, decided to lay off 3,400 workers because they were being paid too much. The company did this because it had only an 8% growth in sales in the previous quarter, and sales were forecasted to grow to only 10% in the next quarter. While Circuit City started off paying workers merely $7.75 an hour, and its average employee made only $10 an hour, it stated that its chief rival paid its workers less on average, and that it could not compete while paying an average that translates to just $19,200 per year before taxes. The poverty threshold in the US for a family of three in 2006 was a little more than $16,000 before taxes. The workers were told that they could reapply for their jobs at lower pay, but the CEO of Circuit City continued to receive $8.52 million, including a $975,000 salary a year. Upon news of the layoffs, the stock value of the company rose 1.9%. Millions of people around the world go hungry and lack access to clean water, healthcare, adequate housing, clothing and transportation. Yet so much goes to waste in the so-called developed world. Factories close, companies go belly up as each capitalist tries to outdo the other, and in the process they produce and produce. As their unplanned anarchic production leads to a crisis of overproduction, they transfer the crisis to the workers, with pay cuts, mass layoffs, and firings. This boom or bust reality is because of the nature of the system, which is to reap greater and greater profits, regardless of what is actually needed. In times of crisis, the capitalists need new markets, cheaper access to resources, and new, cheaper, easily exploitable labor. This fuels the drive to war. If one were to add the expense of war, both in monetary and more tragic human loss, the waste makes even less sense. The base Pentagon budget alone for fiscal year 2013 was $530 billion. This does not account for the billions spent on the US imperial military adventures in Iraq, Pakistan, Libya, Afghanistan, and elsewhere. 
hundreds of thousands of Iraqi, Pakistani, Libyan, and Afghan people, and thousands of young women and men drawn into the US military, have been killed and maimed. But what is the answer? The answer is the abolition of the capitalist system, and the expropriation of the capitalist class. In the place of the capitalist system, a system based on actual human need, in solidarity with the oppressed and workers the world over, needs to be built. The system of socialism removes the profit motive. The means of production are held and developed by the entire society for the need of all in society, not for profit. It is through this system that problems as they come are dealt with, as it is through need and solidarity that problems are solved, not through profit. Chapter 4. Private Property Private property, to a communist, is not your shoes or toothbrush or even your house. These things are called personal property, and under socialism and under communism, they continue to belong to workers in much the same manner as they do now. When Marxists speak of private property under capitalism, it refers to the tools of production that should be owned by all of society, such as factories, lands, stores, mines, and all those things that are gifts of nature or are built by many people over many centuries, but are now being monopolized by a few. These few don't concern themselves with how many years of human labor went into their creation, just so long as they alone can reap profits from legal ownership of that property. The goal of socialism is to increase personal property many times over through the abolishment of private property. Enemies of communism say that communists want to take small farms away from the men and women who worked so hard to keep them going for so many years, and put small grocers, tailors, and carpenters out of business and deny them an independent living. Capitalism has already put most of these small operators out of business and made wage slaves of them, destroying their dreams of independent prosperity. Walmart and Target routinely put small retailers out of business. Giant agribusiness conglomerates mow down small farms every week. Supermarket chains have wiped out the corner grocer. And corporate bookstores like Barnes & Noble are responsible for the destruction of small bookshops. The few small businesses that remain live precariously on the edge of an abyss, with whole families sometimes working long hours to compete. Private property in the means of production is owned by a very small fraction of the population in the capitalist countries, but it was produced by generations of working people, by the immense majority who, over the centuries, learned to till the soil mine the ores, and make buildings and bridges out of trees, rock, clay, and new combinations of nature's bounty. In the earliest days of capitalist accumulation, there were, here and there, some people who amassed relatively small private properties through hard work and miserly living. But most properties, even then, were gained through influence, bribery, and deceit, by robbing the working poor of their labor. It is laughable to think that anyone, or any family, could have earned a billion dollars or even a million, without becoming themselves a big capitalist and utilizing mass exploitation of labor. Personal property has increased in the capitalist world too. Vast estates, mansions, yachts, private jets, designer clothes, all are hoarded by the few, while the personal property of the many decreases in quantity and quality. The 2007 housing bubble bust caused the greatest loss of personal wealth in history for working people in the United States, as millions lost their homes. What they had thought of as theirs belonged, under capitalist law, to the banks and mortgage companies, which snatched it away from them. In the struggle to secure personal property, 
the necessities and comforts of life, the working class will find it necessary to overthrow the institution of private property and put all the means of production under the control of a worker's government. In some places, the people have overthrown the system of private property. In many others, the people are working towards its abolition. Now, with the international capitalist class in a huge economic and financial crisis, more and more workers and oppressed people are saying, enough is enough. Rebellions are taking place across the world, from industrial centers to former colonies, personal property, homes, nourishing food, cameras, bicycles, books, and thousands of small items that raise the health and cultural level of a people will increase year by year under socialism. But no one will personally own the land, the factories, or the banks. Chapter 5. Dialectical and Historical Materialism As part of their socialization within class society, Workers are encouraged to believe that individual self-interest is the foundation of human nature and survival. If this is true, all of human history has been a struggle driven by greed. Workers are told that society cannot be changed because of natural human greed. Workers are given the option of either giving in to that greed or using religion or mysticism to rise above the material world. Neither of those options provides a realistic alternative or solution to the problems presented by class society. Marxists understand that society has not always been driven by individual self-interest and greed, that greed is not a part of human nature, and that society can be changed for the better. All of this can be demonstrated by using dialectical materialism, a scientific method of thinking, to evaluate the world in which humans live. Dialectical materialism can be broken down into its respective components for a better understanding. Dialectics describes the scientific method Marxists use to analyze the world around them. Materialism represents Marxists' conception of the reality dialectics is intended to analyze. Dialectics, as a method of analysis, takes into account the interconnectedness of nature, the contradictions and state of continuous change inherent in it, and the process by which natural, quantitative change leads to qualitative change. Simply put, dialectics holds that all things are in a constant state of change, that this continual change is a result of interactions and conflicts, and that many small hidden changes add up until the thing in question has been qualitatively transformed into something different. The process by which water is transformed into steam, by heating it until it passes the boiling point, illustrates the concept of dialectics at work. Materialism is the Marxist conception of nature as it exists without any supernatural or mystical dimension. Materialism holds that objective reality exists independent of human consciousness and that matter is primary. Dialectical materialism shows that people's thoughts, characters, and actions are shaped by the conditions in the world around them, the material world. When people look at the world through the lens of dialectical materialism, they can see the logical development of beliefs and thoughts, actions and events, and even human history as a whole. Historical materialism extends the principles of dialectical materialism to the study of society and its history. Historical materialism recognizes that history and society develop based on material, economic conditions. Therefore, all development, that of ideas and that of institutions, is based on conflicts and interactions in the material world. This understanding of development and change refutes the argument that class society is based on natural human greed. The development of class society came from the material interactions and conflicts that humans have faced over history, 
A belief in dialectical materialism does not validate the oppression and exploitation of the working masses within this development of class society. Marxists argue that this scientific view analyzes how humanity and society have developed so that it can be changed. Most importantly, it instills the knowledge of human agency in history, that people are in fact able to change the oppressive society that they live in, and that society cannot possibly stay the same as the material world changes. Dialectical materialism implies that capitalism, like everything else, has a birth, a development, and will have an end. Chapter 6. Class Solidarity and the Class Struggle One of the greatest weapons that workers and oppressed people possess against the bosses and capitalists is our unity. When Marxists speak or write about proletarian solidarity, working class solidarity and international solidarity, they mean the complete unity of interest of all the peoples oppressed and exploited by capitalism. It is only by coming together in solidarity it is only through closing ranks against the common enemy that any victory has ever been won by the masses of people. Working class solidarity is present in every picket, every union action, every strike and any time workers take a stand against the bosses. If workers go on strike, only a scab or a boss will cross the picket line, while all workers who feel solidarity with each other refuse. Workers form trade unions and continue to organize into unions today out of the knowledge that only through banding together in solidarity can even the slightest improvement be gained in working conditions, wages, job security, and so forth. Whenever a struggle breaks out, workers in unions and other progressive people from the community will come to the aid and defense of the workers who have gone out on strike, occupied their factory, or taken other decisive action in order to strengthen the struggle against the bosses. This solidarity of the workers is the biggest threat to the capitalists. The bosses attempt to break up and destroy working class solidarity by dividing the poor and working people against each other. They use sexism to turn men against women workers. They try to break the multinational unity of the working class by dividing white workers and people of color and further attempt to pit black and brown workers against one another. Using xenophobic hysteria, bosses attempt to turn US-born workers against immigrant workers. Bosses will also try to divide straight and lesbian, gay, bi, trans and queer workers, LGBTQ. Nonetheless, the solidarity of the world working class and oppressed peoples has often defeated the attempts of the capitalist to trick working people into fighting against one another. U.S. workers showed solidarity with the people of Iraq fighting against U.S. imperialism when, on May Day 2008, workers from the International Longshore and Warehouse Union went on strike to protest the war on Iraq. Similarly, Greek longshore workers blocked the shipment of U.S. arms and munitions to Israel during the U.S.-Israeli siege on Gaza in early 2009. The boycott of Mount Olive Pickles by millions of people in the US who support the Farm Labor Organizing Committee when workers were struggling for higher wages and better working conditions is an act of working class solidarity. Real working class solidarity can only be achieved and real unity won when solidarity is based on the liberation of all people from the shackles of capitalist society. This means, for example, that male workers must actively fight against sexism and for the rights of women workers. White workers must struggle against racism and national oppression, and for the full rights of black and brown workers. 
Workers need class solidarity that unites with the struggles for national liberation, women's liberation, LGBTQ liberation, and the struggles of immigrant workers for full rights, to win the liberation of all oppressed and exploited by capitalism through the worldwide socialist revolution. This is the greatest act of working class solidarity, and is the only thing that will bring an end to the capitalist system of profit and exploitation once and for all, and that will ultimately wipe out all oppression. There can be no class struggle without class solidarity. Chapter 7 Imperialism and Globalization Television viewers can turn on any news channel almost any time of day, and within moments, images of war will spring across the screen. Images of ground troops in Iraq, US military bases in Korea, and air raids in Afghanistan are complemented by the voices of somber newscasters warning about the potential of a naval blockade against Iran, or political and humanitarian crises in places like Zimbabwe and Darfur. The corporate media and its talking heads throw out routine phrases like national security, war on terror, and Islamic fundamentalism in an attempt to explain away these pictures of crisis and conflict. The real root of all this conflict can be found in the nature of imperialism and the role it plays on the international stage. Imperialism is the final stage of capitalism that is reached when the capitalists of a particular country are compelled to economically expand beyond their own borders through military force or other methods of coercion. Imperialism is referred to as the highest stage of capitalism because the capitalist system must either expand or die in its quest to accumulate profits. Vladimir Lenin was a leader of the 1917 Bolshevik Revolution in Russia and a prominent Marxist who popularized the term imperialism and provided it with a scientific definition. Lenin identifies five essential features of imperialism in his germinal work on the subject. Imperialism, the highest stage of capitalism. The five features of imperialism are 1. The creation of decisive monopolies through the concentration of production and capital. 2. The merger of bank capital and industrial capital to create an oligarchy of financial capital. 3. The export of capital and commodities, with capital being the more fundamental of the two. 4. The formation of global capitalist monopolies that share the world among themselves. 5. The territorial division of the whole world amongst the most powerful capitalist powers. These five features of imperialism explain the process by which monopoly capitalism has developed to the point where it raises huge armies and navies and develops high-tech weapons of mass destruction in order to forcibly open new markets and exploit new sources of cheap labor. It is this character of imperialism, its nature to carve the world up for the great capitalist powers, that is behind all the images of war and devastation on the nightly news. Wars have historically been waged by imperialist powers, regardless of the type of political administration, liberal or conservative, social democratic or monarchist or fascist. Governments of imperialist countries have all been responsible for waging imperialist war. Capitalism's expand or die dilemma requires near constant war, regardless of the politics of the government in power. Fred Goldstein, a leader of Workers' World Party, examines the three stages of imperialist war throughout history in his book, Low-Wage Capitalism. The first stage of imperialist war was to redivide the world. This stage was marked by conflict among the imperialist powers to carve out their respective spheres of influence. 
This method of imperialist war lasted until the end of the Second World War, which brought about the defeat of German, Italian and Japanese imperialism, severely diminished the capacity of Britain and France, and positioned the US as the dominant imperialist power. The war also ended with the Soviet Union's historic victory over fascism and the defeat of the German Nazi armies. This new dynamic, US imperial dominance and the emergence of the Soviet Union as a socialist superpower, led to the second stage of imperialist war, war between the socialist and imperialist camps. This stage of imperialist war was marked by a nuclear armed US and its mobilization of all the capitalist forces to contain the twin threats to imperialism at the time, socialist revolutions and national liberation struggles. The inter-imperialist struggle to redivide the globe was replaced by a struggle between the competing social systems of socialism and capitalism, the Korean War, the Vietnam War, the Bay of Pigs invasion of Cuba, and the CIA dirty wars in Angola, Nicaragua, and El Salvador are all examples of the imperialist war against socialism and national liberation during this period. The third and current stage of imperialist war was ushered in after the 1991 defeat of the Soviet Union. This stage has been marked by war for global reconquest of the former socialist camp countries and of countries led by independent bourgeois nationalist governments that the Soviet Union had supported. Expansion of NATO into the former socialist bloc countries of Europe and the US-led NATO war against Yugoslavia exemplify imperialism's drive for global reconquest. Today, the word globalization is commonly used to describe the same phenomenon that Lenin explained more than 100 years ago. Bosses and bourgeois politicians talk about globalization as if it is a new and benign form of capitalism that peacefully spreads wealth and stability to poor countries around the world. But the truth is that what the mainstream media calls globalization is just another form of imperialism. Now, instead of colonizing oppressed countries through the brute force of imperialist armies alone, Bankers and corporations use institutions like the World Bank and the International Monetary Fund to help coerce those countries into bending their will. And those who try to resist globalization still face the threat of imperialist war. More than a million people were killed by the US-led imperialist coalition against Iraq after Iraq's leaders dared to nationalize their own oil fields and use their resources for the independent development of their own country. Building on the anti-imperialist legacy of the late Hugo Chavez, Venezuela faces the constant threat of imperialist invasion for speaking out against the global capitalist monopolies and using the country's resources for the Venezuela's people. The truth is that what capitalists call globalization is just an expansion of imperialism. No matter what the bosses and the politicians call it, the modern expansion of capitalism is just as brutal and miserable for the workers and oppressed of the world as ever. Globalization has plunged hundreds of millions of people around the globe into desperate poverty, and although the bosses talk about the modern, peaceful expansion of capitalism, the reality is that the US alone has been at war almost every year since the fall of the Soviet Union, and has caused the deaths and injuries of millions in imperialist wars since the term globalization was popularized. Imperialism is the enemy of the entire global working class. It does not matter if workers live inside an imperialist country or outside its borders. Imperialism is their class adversary. Workers living in the exploiting countries have a special obligation to support workers in the countries exploited by imperialism as they fight to liberate themselves. 
This concludes our first reading from What is Marxism All About, which we'll continue next week. If you have questions, comments, suggestions, or corrections, you can email leftistreading at gmail.com, or you can contact the show on Twitter at leftistreading. This podcast is hosted on the Abnormal Mapping Network. Check out abnormalmapping.com to find lots of other leftist podcasts there about movies, books, video games, and anime. The intro and outro music is Decisions by Eric Medias. You can find it and more of his work at soundimage.org. That's all for this week. Thanks for listening and keep reading.